Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. For the last time, I'd ask you to turn to 2 Thessalonians. We come to the end of this series this morning. We've already covered the main content of this book. We've, after all, heard that the Thessalonians' faith is remaining steadfast and is growing even in the face of persecutions. We've, we've heard the sobering reality that those who refuse the gospel and do not know God will face eternal punishment. Well, we've heard the double glory awaiting for those who've put their faith in Christ. We've heard about the events of the last days and Paul's appeal to stand firm in the faith. And we've heard about the unruly idlers who were in the church, along with Paul's call not to join them, but to warn them of their sin. And so this is what we've heard. This is the content of this book that we've heard so far. And that leaves us this morning just with the final verses, the the benediction, if you will, as Paul closes his second letter to the church in Thessalonica. And just as was true of 1 Thessalonians, these final few verses are not just a, a goodbye, but they are a rich summary of our hope rooted in the character of God. So would you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and would you follow along as I read just verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in ever, every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Father, we know that you have written your word to us. The words that we read are not only Paul's words. They are also the words your spirit inspired him to write. They are words from God to us. And so I pray that your spirit would continue to speak through your word to us this morning for your glory and the good of your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may remember back when we started this letter of 2 Thessalonians that Paul began his letter with his standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here as Paul comes to the end of the letter and he says that he signs this letter with his own hand, this was likely in contrast to most of the letter, which he probably dictated. As he comes to the end of his letter, Paul concludes with the prayer for the same two blessings he started with, peace and grace. You know, when we read Paul's letters, he often starts with grace to you and peace, and he often ends with grace and peace. Look at the end of many of his letters. You'll see the same blessings there. But it was not because grace and peace was just his formulaic way of saying goodbye. You know, we have various ways of ending our letters. We might have the, the somewhat polite, you know, sincerely that we might end with, or, or maybe the more, the more uh, relational or personal with love, or the very spiritual, in Christ. You know, 
We have all of our different ways of ending, ending a letter. But grace and peace was more than just Paul saying, sincerely yours, Paul. Grace and peace, this closing prayer, was a rich summary of God's blessings on his people and Paul's prayer that the church would continue to experience these blessings. Just think about these words for a minute. Paul prays grace to you. Well, what is grace? Grace refers to the undeserved kindness and goodness of God that God shows to us even though we don't deserve it and we haven't done anything to merit it. And of course, God's salvation is the greatest example of God's grace, but it only takes a moment's reflection to show that all of the blessings in life are God's grace. All of the blessings of life are God's goodness and kindness showed to us even though we haven't earned them or deserved them. We might think of, of anything that comes to us, the, the rain that falls on us to give us food and enable our crops to grow, Paul says, is part of God's grace to his people. Anything that is, comes of God's provision is his grace. So in praying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, Paul was acknowledging, yes, the grace of God and salvation that had come to Thessalonica, but his but also God's grace that continues to uphold the believers in Thessalonica and to strengthen them and provide for them and enable their growing faith and obedience as God's people. All of that is God's kindness that Paul was praying would be with the Thessalonians. And in praying for peace, peace, Paul was summarizing all that is ours because of the gospel that has come to us in God's undeserved kindness. You know, when you and I talk about peace, usually we mean the restoration of halfway civil relationships between our kids as they fight over their Legos. Or we mean the the sense of inner calm that's not interrupted by homework assignments and work calls. That's usually what we mean with peace, and somehow it never seems like we can quite settle into that peace in any sort of lasting way. Things keep interrupting us. But the problem is not that we're expecting too much when we long for peace. If anything, we're looking for too little. Because in Scripture, peace is far more than the resolution of conflict, and it's far more than taking away a stressor in my life. In the Bible, peace refers to the settled and unthreatened joyful flourishing of all things. It refers to a life of blessing and wholeness and harmony in all things and between all people as God had intended it from the beginning. You might know the Hebrew word shalom, which refers and, 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 and brings all of this wholeness and blessing and harmony and unthreatened joyful flourishing into view. That's what Paul is praying for when he refers to peace. And while it's certainly true that in our lives, as one of my children likes to say, life is full of disappointments, the glorious news of Scripture is that God is the one who does, in fact, offer to us and call us to and promise us this wholeness, this unthreatened joy through Christ Jesus, the Lord of peace. And so Paul ends with this prayer for peace. And then in verse 16, Paul also prays that the Lord would be with the Thessalonians. 
And here Paul was acknowledging that grace and peace are not some sort of independent gift that God happens to give to us or hand over to us, but rather grace and peace are gifts that come because the very presence of Jesus is with us each day and forever. Jesus' presence with us is the root and the source of the grace and peace that we receive from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul was very much summarizing all of the glory of the gospel when he closes with a prayer for grace, the undeserved kindness of God, and peace, the restoration of the wholeness and blessing and unthreatened joy as God had intended through the presence of the Lord with the Thessalonians. But if grace and peace was a frequent prayer of Paul's at the end of his letter, this closing prayer is also unique from any other closing prayer because of its emphasis. It has a unique emphasis on peace. And this may be because the church in Thessalonica surely needed peace. Just think about what we've read. We've read that the church was facing persecution and affliction. We've read that the church was shaken and alarmed by false teaching. We've read that the church needed to respond with church discipline to a group of unruly believers who were harming the church. Peace seems like an awfully critical blessing to pray for for the church of Thessalonica. And I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning understanding Paul's prayer for peace. Of course, the Thessalonians were not the first nor the last to face suffering or anxiety or despair. In many ways, I think we could say that the longing for peace is the longing for rest and hope in the face of all that is wrong with this world and in the face of the daily reminders of sin's curse all around us. The well-known American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow knew this longing. In 1861, while Longfellow was taking a nap, his wife's dress caught fire. And although he awoke and tried to extinguish the flame, she died from her injuries the following morning. Two years later, his son secretly left the house, took a train to Washington, D.C., and enlisted in the Union Army. That December, his son was wounded badly and arrived home unsure if he would ever walk again. And on Christmas morning, 1863, Longfellow, a widowed and grieving parent, penned the words of his poem, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Isn't that what we feel when we look around us at times? Or maybe, maybe you're more familiar with the words of that other famous poet, John Lennon, he wrote, Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. 
This is the heart of our longing. And look around us. Look at our hearts. Look at us at the end of another week. We feel the same longing for peace. In fact, it's what every man and woman on earth has longed for ever since. The terrified Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden, accusing each other for their fall from grace. And yet for all of history's longings, Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians is not an imagine-if wish, but a confident declaration that peace is possible. And in three short declarations, Paul's prayer establishes a foundation for real peace that's found in the gospel. Would, Would you look just briefly at the three short declarations in verse 16? Paul begins by praying to the Lord of peace. When Paul uses the word Lord, he almost always refers to Jesus, and that's almost certainly the case here. What makes Jesus the Lord of peace? Well, to begin, of course, Jesus is divine. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, who has dwelt from all eternity in perfect peace. John MacArthur, well-known pastor in California, reminds us, he says, God is at all times in perfect peace without any discord within himself. God is never under stress or worried or anxious or fearful or unsure or unthreatened. He is always perfectly calm and tranquil and content. There are no surprises for his omniscience, no changes for his immutability, no threats to his sovereignty, no doubts to cloud his wisdom, no stain, no sin to stain his holiness. He dwells in perfect peace. But Jesus is not only in perfect possession of peace, Jesus is also the one appointed to bring peace. After all, in the face of slavery, a wilderness wandering, oppression, exile to foreign nations, repeated failures and sin, in the midst of all of that, God had been promising Israel generation after generation that one would come who would bring peace. You remember Isaiah's prophecy? For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And you remember what the angels declared in the morning or the evening of Christ's birth, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus arrives, you see, to bring the kingdom of God where God's presence and God's rule are established to defeat sin and Satan forever, restoring the wholeness and the harmony and the blessing that we call peace. And so it's no wonder that Paul calls Jesus the Lord of peace. Well, the next phrase, Paul prays that the Lord of peace himself would give you peace. And here Paul was recognizing that Jesus is not only the Lord of peace, he is also the source of peace. It's Jesus who brings to us peace. And he reminds us here that peace is not a thing we get. Peace is not a free download for those interested in checking out Jesus. No, peace, the peace Jesus offers comes because Jesus himself comes to be with us. See, nothing can threaten the peace of the divine and triune God. And by coming to us himself, Jesus offers to draw us into the orbit of his presence, to draw us into the orbit of his kingdom, his rule, his presence, so that when we are with him, we are in the presence of the one whose peace cannot be threatened. 
Maybe you remember a time when you were a, chi- when you were a child, or maybe one of you children who are here remember a time when you got distracted at a, at a beach or an amusement park or another large public space, and all of a sudden you looked up and you can't see your parents. Remember that feeling of panic, and you look around and there's chaos and unfamiliar faces and you have no idea what to do? But then do you remember how the panic subsides when your parents themselves find you and call out to you and come and get you and take hold of your hand and hold on to you? The crowds around you haven't changed, but you're now in the presence of your parents. And it's something like this that Paul is reminding us, that Jesus, the sovereign and victorious Lord, himself draws near to us and takes hold of us and promises to us, lo, I am with you always. And he whispers, remember what he told his disciples the night before he left them on the cross? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Peace is the result of being brought into fellowship with the Lord of peace, who himself gives us peace. Well, then look at the third phrase. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. This is a glorious phrase. This is just wonderful. As one commentator summarized, he said, the thought of this phrase is not that of a peace which comes on a series of occasions when we happen to need it. That's not what all times means. No, the thought is that of a peace which is unchanging, which abides continually in us no matter what circumstances happen to hit us from without. And I think if we're willing to acknowledge it, this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Because we're happy to review our theology of peace, but most of us really just want peace at all times and in every way. And we start to look around us, and if we're honest, I think we begin to doubt that this type of peace is really possible. And we start to have that dialogue with Paul. You know, Paul, that's all fine and good, but if you saw how our country was falling apart, if you had lived through COVID, you know, Paul, if you had seen how my spouse makes peace impossible and has ruined our family, if you knew the dangers that are facing my child or the pressures that I face at school or work, you wouldn't have been so quick to talk about peace at all times and in every way, Paul. But of course, this is Paul, who went through flogging and imprisonment and shipwreck and sleepless nights and felt the anxiety of all of the churches bearing on his mind. And it's the same Paul who talks of joy in all circumstances and contentment with much or little and peace that passes understanding, who prays for peace at all times in every way. How is that possible? That's the crux for our hearts this morning, isn't it? Author Robert Jones reminds us that in his death and resurrection, Jesus has accomplished peace in four directions. And it's these four directions of peace that Jesus accomplishes that make this abiding and unchanging peace possible for us. First, Christ accomplished the most important peace by bringing peace between us and God. And if you have known Christ for many years, sometimes it's easy to forget that the heart of our hopelessness is our desperate attempt to make life work our own way while ignoring and hating God's ways. And that separates us from God. And it justly earns us his wrath. But in his death and resurrection, Christ took our punishment on himself and reconciled us to God, made peace 
between us and God. And not only did he make peace between us and God, but in doing so, he also changes our hearts so that we desire to live in line with him instead of against him. And so at its core, at its fundamental foundation, Jesus accomplishes peace between us and God. But Christ has also brought inner peace to our hearts. Jesus has accomplished peace in this direction as well. This is what Paul promises when he urges the Philippians to pray, saying, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I think if we were honest, most of us would say this is where we struggle most, inner peace. How is this possible? The late J.I. Packer explained it this way. He said, there is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with the full assurance that they have known God and that God has known them and that this relationship with God guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. That's where this assurance comes from. And we typically struggle with inner peace because our minds continue to focus on the threats. Even when we're praying, our prayers often turn into times rehearsing the threats instead of talking to God. You know how that happens, right? You're praying and all of a sudden you're just starting to list all the things you're afraid of and your prayers are no help. They're just a a repetition of all of the fears that have been going through your minds for the last 24 hours or maybe 24 years. But God invites us to break that cycle and to focus on something else. He invites us in prayer to bring our cares and our worries and anxieties before him and then to spend our time focusing on his character, his promises, and his presence with us so that we're refreshed in our confidence in him even when our circumstances don't change. And it's as we focus on this sovereign God who has all things under his control and who has promised to work all things for our good and who reminds us that this world is not a measure of our happiness. It's just a preparation for the world to come and who invites us to rest in fellowship with him. It's as we focus on this God that we are filled with a peace that passes understanding. That's the second direction. The third direction, Jesus also enables relational peace between people. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that when Christ takes people who are hostile to each other and he reconciles both of those people to himself, Christ then fills both of those people with his own spirit, making us one in him and breaking down walls of hostility and so bringing peace. This is why Paul urges us to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And why Paul says, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Now, each one of us knows that peacemaking is difficult work because our sinful flesh is still in play. Peace between people doesn't just happen with a snap of Jesus. But because of Christ's efforts on the cross to initiate peace and reconciliation with each of us and to set us an example to follow, and because we've both been reconciled in Christ, we now have the resources we need to pursue peace with one another. But it's the fourth direction of peace that I think is the most crucial. Because while Jesus has made peace between us and God, and while Jesus has given us the resources for inner peace and relational peace, we still have to battle this in life, don't we? Sin is still at play in our hearts. Circumstances still 
press us. Our flesh still puts up quite a fight. And the curse of sin on the world still leads to accidents and pandemics and tragedies. But the fourth direction of peace, we're reminded that Christ has accomplished a peace that is still waiting to fully play out. And Paul tells us of this in Romans 16.20 where he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, God has sent the Prince of Peace who will shortly crush Satan and bring about the full and final forever peace and new creation where the lion lays down with the lamb, where there is no mourning or crying or pain anymore, where every tear is wiped, where former things pass away and all things are made new where we dwell with him forever. And that's the guaranteed end. And if that's the guaranteed end, that gives us the ability to have peace at all times in every way. And maybe, we, maybe we could use this as, as an analogy. What if God, in a, a moment of special revelation, which we don't believe he does, but what if he did, in a moment, reveal to a new mother that she and her baby would be delivered safely and healthily and all would be well? That new mother would then have the peace she needed, even through the pain of labor or the scare of unexpected complications, because she had God's word guaranteeing the safe and healthy and good outcome that was on its way. Widen that lens then, and that is exactly what God has given us. His word ahead of time, revealing that even though there may be losses and griefs on the way, he will bring all of his people into a fullness of peace. He will wipe away all sadness and mourning and bring things into perfect, unthreatened joy when he comes to make all things new forever. And it's this fourth direction of peace that comforted Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1863. See, I read you most of his poem, but I left off the last stanza. Having just written in his agony that hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, Longfellow concludes with this stanza. But then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow nailed it, didn't he? This is peace. The Lord of peace, who himself brings us peace at all times in every way. And isn't this a timely reminder for us? Just think of all that's going on around us. For many, the COVID reality continues to press us with anxieties and fears. And no government and no scientist and no vaccine and no stay-at-home order can ever give us peace because they can't guarantee our safety. And that has only been emphasized to us again and again. But in fact, COVID or no COVID, if we're willing to acknowledge it, death is always inevitable. And scripture tells us that even the youngest and healthy of us do not know what tomorrow will bring. And COVID has only required us to face our mortality in a way that we don't often have to in our modern Western world. But that does not need to paralyze the man who trusts in God. Do you remember God's promises? Be still and know that I am God. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The church 
has faced persecution and bubonic plague and countless dangers through the years, and yet the church has faced those with a joy and confidence that seems unfathomable to the world. And it's a joy and a confidence and a peace that comes because the Lord of peace has equipped us to face even death itself, even unexpected death, with peace through salvation in Christ, through his presence with us, through his guarantee of an eternity and peace with him. And that's why it's unlikely, or maybe I should say it is likely, that many who do not know God would not understand our desire to take even minor risks right now. But we trust in a God who is sovereign, not as a guarantee of staying healthy, but as a guarantee of his presence with us to turn everything to our good and to his glory. And it's that that strengthens us to be able to do the things that he calls us to do tomorrow and next week and over the next year. But of course, this peace goes in other directions too. For others today, the state of our nation presses us with fear and anxiety. The America we hold dear or the America we wish would take shape appears to be threatened. Is persecution or oppression on its way? For others, the variety of daily situations threaten our peace and contentment. And yet again and again, whatever direction our fear goes, we have the Lord of peace who himself is with us and has given us peace with God, enabled peace with one another, enabled a peace that passes understanding in our hearts and has guaranteed the final peace on the last day. Peace at all times and in every way is our settled and unthreatened state because of who God is and what he has done for us and what he has promised is ahead if we are in Christ. Well, if I can take 30 seconds, here we are at the end of Thessalonians. And I'm so thankful for the study in these two letters. Back at the beginning in April, when we started First and Second Thessalonians, we said that these letters would describe what a church should look like as they wait for the return of Jesus. And as we've looked through these two letters, what have we seen? We've seen a godly church that is one that stands steadfast in faith, even through persecution, that increases in its love for one another, that grows in sanctification and obedience rooted in the word of God, that faithfully lives and talks about their faith so that the gospel is declared to the whole surrounding region, that sets its hope on the coming return of Jesus that diligently opposes false teaching and unruly living and does all of that with the peace of God relying on the grace of Jesus because the Lord is with us. What a great picture to continue to hold before us as a church. And I want to end by reading Paul's prayer at the end of 1 Thessalonians for us as a church this morning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify us completely and may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer that you would conform our hearts and our lives more and more to your image while we wait for you to return again and establish and restore this perfect peace that you have promised. Father, would you enable our hearts to be settled, 
to be at rest in your goodness, your undeserved kindness, and in the peace that you have brought through Jesus Christ this week. And may that be a testimony to the glory of our God to all those around us. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.